Well, hey church, it's great to have you back with us as we continue through our journey through Hebrews, not going back. You know, we've been working through our daily devotionals. We've been talking about it in life groups and these six weeks of summer we're spending preaching through the book of Hebrews. I just love how throughout this book, this sermon, uh, the, the author just reiterates, he just keeps pointing to Jesus. He just keeps talking about Jesus and saying, do you know what? Forget about what you knew and just remember that Jesus is the way. Remember his authority, remember his superiority and remember to put him in his rightful place in your life, right at the very forefront of everything you're thinking, everything you're doing, it's so important. And he just reiterates throughout this book that that is what we should be doing. So today we're gonna be working our way through chapter 10 of Hebrews. And once again, the author is reminding the people, these Jews who have converted to Christianity, that Jesus fulfilled the law. What they knew was Old Testament law, what they knew was sacrifices and rituals to atone for sin, but what the author is reiterating throughout the book and in this chapter, Jesus fulfilled the law. So you don't have to, you don't need to work anymore, you don't need to strive because Jesus did it all. The law worked for a time, the law worked for a period, and that process of of, of making sacrifices and going through those kind of motions year after year, they, they ultimately led to these people living under a banner of guilt. You know, each year the slate would be wiped clean on the Day of Atonement when the high priest went into the temple to make that sacrifice. And you could almost imagine the people breathing a sigh of relief. You know, as the high priest made this sacrifice and their sins of the past year were wiped clean and they've got this kind of clean slate, if you like, until they mess up the next time, whether that's the next day, the next week, or even like minutes after leaving the temple. As soon as that atonement sacrifice has been made, wiped clean, but then they step out as soon as they mess up, as soon as they make a mistake. They then have to carry that weight for the whole of the rest of the year until the Day of Atonement comes round again. I don't know, maybe it's a bit like putting on your favourite hoodie fresh out of the wash and you know it's got that clean clothes smell and you just, you love it, whether it's something you want to lounge around in or something you want to show off in public, I don't know, and if you're anything like me, you've put on this clean item of clothing and it looks amazing and then you spill something right down the front and it's like ah oh, you know it was clean for a moment but now I'm gonna have to wait for it to sit in the washing basket and then for in my case for Ruth to do the washing and then for it to dry and then land back on my bed to be worn again and I have to wait all that time because after just a short while of having this clean hoodie I've spilt something on it I've made a mess of it and now it's it's worthless and useless until it becomes clean again. I don't know, maybe that's just me. But that's what life is like for these people because the Day of Atonement was once a year and so they have to wait, they have to carry that, that burden. And just imagine living under that weight of, of guilt, of sin, of shame for a whole year 
until your sins can be covered up by the sacrifice that the high priest makes. So these people were living under this banner of guilt, but what the author is reminding them of once again is that we shouldn't live under a banner of guilt, but a banner of grace. Because Jesus has paid the price, because Jesus has wiped all of our sins clean once and for all. It wasn't just a a process that he went through that would cleanse of our sins for, for the next year or for the next period, but it was once and for all. That's it. Job done. It is finished. I love this in, in verse 11 and 12. It says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. It says that the priest stands, but Jesus sits. The priest stands, but Jesus sat down. You know, the priest is standing in the temple. He's striving year after year to go through the motions, to complete the rituals, to make the necessary sacrifices in order to cover up the sins of the people. This sacrificial process that that would atone for the sins for a period, but then would have to be repeated because it was only covering up the sins. It wasn't wiping them clean. It wasn't taking them away for good. But then there's Jesus. And he's not standing. He's sat down. And you might ask, well, why is he sat down? Is it because he's lazy? Is it because he's tired? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. It's like, let me put it like this. It's like on Christmas Day. You know, we're talking about Jesus, so I'm going to use his birthday as a reference point right now. You know, Christmas is my all-time favourite day of the year. No doubt about it. 138 sleeps until Christmas, but who's counting? I can't wait. I love Christmas. And not only is it my favourite day of the year, but it also includes my favourite meal of all time. We were talking about this around the dinner table the other day and I was like, oh, what's your favourite meal? And, you know, Caleb is like, he just loves anything with pasta in it. And Ruth loves a Chinese takeaway. And then I'm like, well, oh, actually, what what is my favourite meal? Christmas dinner. Or more specifically, my mum's Christmas dinner. Do you know, if, uh, if Christmas dinner isn't your best meal of the year, then you aren't doing it right. Either that or you've not tried my mum's Christmas dinner. Maybe one year she'll have us all round. <laughs> Probably not. But Christmas dinner doesn't just cook itself, does it? You know, I like to cook, so, you know, I enjoy having people round at Christmas and I get to do all the preparations, but also it's nice to just not have to. But Christmas dinner doesn't cook itself. That duck isn't going to roast itself. Those potatoes aren't going to crisp up themselves. The sprouts, the stuffing, the Yorkshire puddings, the pigs in blankets, the parsnips. Is anyone else hungry right now? Oh my gosh. But Christmas dinner isn't going to cook itself. It takes someone to put in some effort. Maybe sweat a little bit with the heat of the cooking. Maybe even sacrifice a little bit because when you're busy in the kitchen cooking, you're you're missing out a little bit on the social element of Christmas Day, of the joy of just being around family. 
only for a little while while you're cooking. But, you know, my mum and I'm the same. When Christmas dinner is done, when it's all cooked, when it's all finished, I like to go to my favourite chair and sit down. Why am I sitting down? Because I'm lazy? Because I'm tired? No, I'm sitting down because I'm done. I'm finished. I'm not going anywhere for the rest of the day. My job here is done. And it's a sense of satisfaction. It's a sense of achievement. It's a sense of rest because I know that the work is done. And I think it's interesting that, you know, from the cross, with his arms stretched out wide, Jesus didn't shout to us or say to us, you need to strive to achieve something. He didn't say, you guys need to work harder. He didn't say, you guys need to be better. What he said, arms stretched wide on the cross, was, it is finished. It's finished. The job is done. You see, we can never strive or earn our forgiveness. I am not enough, but Jesus is more than enough. He's more than enough because he's paid the price. He's shed the necessary blood. He's made the sacrifice once and for all, and it is finished. We don't need to live under a banner of guilt or a banner of shame because we live under the banner of God's grace. You know, when we, I think that sometimes we have this idea that when we invite Jesus into our spirits, when we say, come and be Lord over my life, we, we know that our spirits are washed clean. But then, then when we mess up, when we, you know, become dirty again in that sense, every time we, we think a wrong thought or, or say something wrong or, or do something that isn't right, we, we perhaps think that we need to run straight to God and and to repent of, of what it is that we've done wrong. Otherwise, our relationship with God will be lost forever. In that moment of doing something wrong, of messing up, we, we almost panic a little bit and say, God, you need to forgive me, otherwise I'm going to miss out on something. Maybe we don't think our relationship will be lost forever. Maybe we just think that for that moment, while we're covered in the guilt and the shame of our sin, that God's just going to turn away from us for a moment that he's going to withhold his, his blessings from us for a moment. But that's not what this passage is saying. That's not what Jesus proclaimed, because he proclaimed it is finished. <coughs> Does it sound like the actions of a loving father to withhold anything from us, even though we messed up? Does it sound like the actions of a gracious saviour of the king who, who is king and ruler over everything, does that sound like the actions of the God you know? To withhold anything because of your actions? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And, you know, verses 10 and 12 of this chapter tell us that Jesus' sacrifice paid the price once and for all. You know, maybe we need to let these verses impact our theology a little bit. Maybe we need to recognize in our lives that kind of fear, the guilt and the shame that comes on us almost naturally when we sin. But our sins have been forgiven, not just covered over, not just swept under the rug in that sense, but wiped clean once and for all, past, present and future. Your sins 
are forgiven. Your spirit is clean forever. Yes, our bodies can sin. Yes, we mess up from time to time. But if you've accepted Jesus into your life, your sins are forgiven. Your spirit is clean forever. Forever. You know, spiritual maturity isn't about trying to grow up our spirit, but it's about renewing our mind to recognizing and understanding what we already have through Christ, a clean and perfect spirit, a spirit that is identical to the spirit that Jesus carried throughout his life and ministry on this earth. If Jesus is your Lord and Savior this morning, you are clean. You are clean, you are holy, you are sanctified, you are righteous, and that will never change because Jesus paid the price once and for all. Okay, so does that mean that I should go on living for myself? Does that mean that I should be intentional about sinning, about messing up? Absolutely not. Just go and read verse 28 of this chapter or look at Romans 6 verse 1 and you'll see that actually we shouldn't be uh, intentional, we shouldn't be uh, forgetting what God has taught us and living for ourselves. We should live for God. We should live for God. But do our mistakes mean that God will withhold anything from us? Absolutely not. Never. Because he loves us. He's for us. He's with us and he will never leave or forsake us. They are the promises of God to us because we have a confident hope. We have a full assurance of faith and we have a father who loves us. He loves us enough to send his one and only son to die for us once and for all. Once and for all. So in the second half of chapter 10, the author gives us three encouragements. And I just want to spend the time we've got left, a few minutes, just looking at these these three points. Uh, And I'm going to highlight those to us. So from verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. My first point, the first encouragement that I notice from these few verses is draw near. Draw near. You know, these verses talk about this confidence that we now have. On the day of atonement, the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies with fear and trembling, and quite rightly so, because he was a sinful man just like you and me, entering into the presence of God. No man can enter into the presence of God without the grace of Jesus on his life. So this high priest would enter into, to make the sacrifice, enter into, you know, get near to the presence of God with fear and trembling, but we can enter into his presence with confidence, with boldness because of what Jesus did. Without Jesus, we wouldn't be able to enter into his presence. But in this new life, this new and living way, we are encouraged even to draw near to God. And the audience that the writer is is speaking to, they were struggling 
with this. They were in this crisis of faith moment where they were almost forgetting the grace of God, through forgetting the work that Jesus did, the price that he paid, and drifting back into what they knew before. The way that they knew. Unfortunately, the way that they knew, you know, this kind of proximity to God, it just wasn't allowed. They weren't used to having this direct access to God. They weren't used to being allowed into his presence. Their real problem wasn't necessarily that they were drifting back, but that they'd lost this intimate relationship with God. We are privileged to have an intimate relationship with our Heavenly Father because of the price that Jesus paid. And what they knew, these Jews, what they, they had converted to Christianity, what they knew was that their mistakes would separate them from God. Every time they messed up, it would drive this wedge between them and God and they'd just drift further and further away. And, and that's what they knew from the past. And I think it can feel the same for you and me. Because <clears throat> although we recognise the grace of God in our lives, when we mess up, when we make a mistake, something of a weight of guilt and a weight of shame comes upon us. And we feel like we're not worthy anymore of entering into God's presence. And we feel guilty for the action that we do. And so we pull away from God. But let me be clear right now, God never pulls away from you. He's always there, ready and waiting for you to turn back to him because he loves you. No matter what you do, because Jesus paid the price once and for all. So we're encouraged to draw close to God. We're encouraged to, to enter into his presence with confidence, with boldness, with this hope and assurance of our faith because of Jesus. Let's look at verses 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. As a side point, I think it would have been really easy for us during this COVID time to have drifted away from meeting together because right now we're meeting together in a very different way and it feels a bit weird and it feels uncomfortable, but it's great that we can have continued some sense of community, whether it's through the chat on Sunday mornings or whether it's through life groups or our various WhatsApp groups, <coughs> we can still keep this sense of community. And there's a challenge and an encouragement here not to stop meeting together. But the second point that I want to uh, highlight this morning is that we need to live a life of love. We need to live a life of love. And here the author gets real practical, and I love that. He begins to encourage us or say to us that we need to encourage each other to love and to good works. We need to encourage each other to a life of love. The Passion Translation puts it this way, discover creative ways to encourage others, to motivate them towards acts of compassion, of doing beautiful works as expressions of love. What a great way to, to put it. You know, James, we talked about James a few months ago. He talks about the relationship between faith and works. And last week, Joe was talking about 
rest and how actually true rest comes from knowing that we no longer need to strive. We don't need to earn our way into grace or into heaven. We don't need to strive or work in that sense. But what James argues is not the opposite to that, but actually just that that out of that faith, out of that place of rest, there should be a desire within us to want to serve God, to want to show others his love and his grace and his hope through our actions. So what the writer is saying here is that, yes, you have faith, but you should be encouraging each other to demonstrate that faith through your practical outworking and actions. The response to our faith, the response to this intimate relationship with God that we now have, of being able to enter into his presence, should be expressed through our actions, through blessing other people, through giving of yourself, your time, your finances, your skills, whatever it is. When you draw near to God, I believe that he reveals more of his plans in your life. When we spend time in his presence, we get revelation of who he is, of who he's calling us to be, and we get to see a glimpse of who, how he sees us. Because, you know, we might be clothed in, in doubt and shame and uh, negative things that make us feel like we're worthless. But when we're in God's presence, he says, I love you. I'm for you. You are enough. You are more than enough. You can do this. He's got our back. He's our biggest advocate. He is our cheerleader getting hyped up for how amazing we are. maybe ask yourself right now, what does God want to do through you this week? What practical way can you show his love? Take this as me encouraging you to get out there and to do something creatively to demonstrate God's love to those you come into contact with this week. So we need to draw near to God. We need to live a life of love. And thirdly, don't throw it all away. Don't throw it all away. In verse 32, it says, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. And then jumping to 35, Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great, a great reward. I remember when I was about 15 or so, I was out riding my bike one day um, and it was a dry day, but it, it had been raining before that. And I went round this corner, I remember it vividly, uh, just near Amsdor Bridge. I go round this corner over a manhole and the manhole was still wet. And so as I went over it, my bike slipped out from under me and I fell to the ground. Now, I wasn't badly hurt, maybe a, a grazed arm and a bruised ego, but from that moment on, for a long time, I found that there was an element of hesitation, of nervousness when I went round corners. You know, I'd been riding my bike for a long time, confidently, without fear. And yet this one moment, this one incident, accident, caused me to have doubt in, in my ability. Something that I'd had peace with for so long was then thrown into question because of this one moment, this one incident. And these people that the writer is speaking to, you know, they've converted to Christianity and that won't have been easy for them because 
you know, they would have been ridiculed by the Jews. They would have faced rejection from their community. They would have even been uh, thought of as dead because they'd, they'd rejected the Jewish customs and begun to believe and have faith in Jesus Christ. And yet through all that, they remained strong. They remained faithful. They managed to get through that and they were still living to fight another day. So what the author is saying, remember all of those years, all of that time that you went through the rejection and the ridicule and the, and the questions and the murmurings behind your back. You went through all of that and you're fine. But now something has happened and it's beginning to knock you. It's beginning to pull you back away from God. But what he's saying is don't throw it all away. Don't throw it all away. You've had so much positivity. You've come through so much. Don't throw it all away because of this one moment. Don't give up. Draw close to God. Be in his presence. Let him speak life over you. Don't give up. Don't lose your confidence. Don't go back. And then look at this, confusion, this conclusion in verse 39. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. We are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and preserve their souls. You know, this statement has such confidence, such power and weight behind it. It declares we are not shrinking back. We are not held back by fear. We won't quit. We won't throw it all away. But what we will do is we will stay strong. We will survive. We will have faith. We're going to keep on trusting in Jesus and we're going to declare that we are not going back. We're not going back. Why are we not going back? Because Jesus paid the price once and for all. So we don't need to drift back. We don't need to try and earn anything. We don't need to strive for anything. That's what the high priest did in fear and trembling, year after year, trying to strive and earn forgiveness. But Jesus on the cross paid the price once and for all. So we don't need to go back. We can just have faith and rest in Jesus. Why don't we pray? Father God, we just thank you for the confidence and the assurance of faith that we have in you. We thank you that you sent your son to die for us. And we thank you that Jesus made that sacrifice once and for all. And I pray that the hope of that fills us with confidence, with boldness, with assurance that we can uh, go out from uh, watching this message or listening to this podcast and we can go out from this place and begin to demonstrate your love to those around us. That that faith will just begin to pour out of us through our actions, through our words, through our deeds, that we won't be able to contain it any longer, that it will just burst out of us. And we want to say and demonstrate and show people just how much you love them because we know how much you love us. And so I thank you for the privilege of being able to draw near to you, that we don't have to fear anymore, that we can just draw close and rest in your presence. In Jesus' name.
Amen. Amen. Well, thank you all so much for listening today. I hope it's been encouraging and inspiring. And as we say, I hope that you leave from watching this message changed and more like Jesus than you were when you started watching this message. Have a great week.